Does anyone really believe that we're going to get closer to the cities that we want to have or what we think cities ought to be by knowing less about cities? I want to ask if knowledge is hegemonic, the ways in which communities contribute to the dialogue of science. Not to be involved in bringing the context to deal with that kind of a technology out there is a mistake. Most of us believe we still have lots of things to learn about cities. It can be a pathway to progressive planning or a regression to technocracy. How do we ensure that the public interest is served? Hi, I'm Takeo Kuwabara, the Communications Coordinator at the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And I'm David Lashansky, producer for the Planning Ideas That Matter podcast. In this podcast, we're going to dive deeper into some of the ideas discussed during the series of faculty debates at MIT, also called Planning Ideas That Matter. These debates are focused on the changing landscape of planning in the urban spaces and how planning methods in these places are changing. So to start us off, there were a couple of ideas that seemed to come up over and over and over again at the debates. Yeah, for one, urban science and big data and technology and As you'd expect from a debate among some of the top thinkers in the field of urban planning, there were some differences of opinion. But that doesn't address the question. Larry, can you define what science is? Can you define what the word science is? Do you want me to read you the definition of science from the dictionary? You know, it's semantic of arguing whether the word science is relevant or not. Is politics a science? But if, if you trivialize what science means, then we get into the debate. We have. So throughout this podcast series, we'll be talking to some of these speakers to get a bit more of a sense of what urban science and big data and technology mean for the future of urban planning. As well as touching on the other key points of discussion from the Planning Ideas That Matter debates. So first up, and for today's episode, we have... Hello, my name is Larry Suskind. I'm on the faculty in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT. And in this episode, we're going to talk with Larry about some of the ideas that he presented during the faculty debates, using audio recorded from both our personal interview and from the debates themselves. And one of the big things that came out when talking about urban science, especially with Larry, was the importance of defining terms. As many of our listeners might know, this is something that urban planners confront consistently. So Larry, you've been a member and a kind of a founding head of urban studies and planning Uh, I wonder if you could define urban planning for us. Sure. I'll be very precise. Urban planning is the purposeful intervention through a complex web of institutions to enhance the quality of life in places and spaces. Okay, that seems simple enough. So what's the question about urban science? Well, frankly, whether there's even such a thing as urban science... I'm worried about the downside risk of pretending that there's an urban science and mobilizing to try to uh, flesh it out. Um, How can there actually be a science of cities? Uh, That would mean that context is not important. And the dynamic interactions amongst the components or elements of a city system can be counted on to operate in predictable and replicable ways. If we're alleging we're moving toward a science, then there's got to be some 
sense that there's a set of dynamics that are predictable and replicable, that there's some set of elements that relate to each other that we can study and know and count on the fact that they will perform in a certain way. The scary thing for me about that is it strips these elements of context. So what we're saying is that urban science, the topic of these debates, might not even be a real thing. And even if it were a thing, that might not be for the best. Right. Here's Larry again. You think the way these variables relate in New York is the same as the way they relate in Boston and in Paris and in Mogadishu? I don't think so. Differences are too many and too great to postulate in a general way the relationships amongst the variables. Therefore, I'm very worried about a search for urban science that strips away context, that is all the history, all the culture, all the important things that make up why life is different in one city from another, to get down to the variables and their relationship to each other so I can mathematize those relationships, so I can optimize going forward. And I, I don't think we can strip away all the context for purposes of doing the experiments, for purposes of coming up with the algorithms that define all these interactions. So I'm, I'm very worried about that. And historically, planners have planned not just in places, but with the people in those places. In fact, that is core to the purposeful intervention that I described at the top. Purposeful intervention through a web of complex institutional arrangements for the purposes of improving the quality of life in places and spaces. And who says what the quality of life is and how to improve it? The people in the place. Do they agree? No, they don't. So the planner needs to know how to elicit a shared view for purposes of moving forward, seeking to achieve progress in a place. And consulting a set of generic algorithms about the relationships amongst places absolutely cuts out the involvement of the people in the place. And Larry's not speaking lightly when he talks about the importance of planners' methods of involving the people in the place. People thought planning was the making of a picture of the future of a place based on the expertise of the person making the picture, the model, the map, the land use plan, okay? That went away in the 60s and 70s uh, when federal programs in the United States and then all over the world said, no, people have to participate in what's going on. So urban planners had to learn a whole different bundle of skills. They slosh through meeting after meeting after meeting in the neighborhood level. They sit through enormous numbers of conversations with different interest groups. They come back with different options for what might happen. And then they look at why some of those are appealing to some groups and not so appealing to other groups. And then they present all of that to the city council, which is the elected body with the authority to approve a new plan. 
and then it holds hearings and it listens to people who come forward. And after all of that input, the city planners are told by the city council, well, this is the direction we want to go. Now we want an updated plan, not just a bunch of choices, and we want to lay out ways we can minimize the adverse impacts and enhance the positive benefits. And at that point, the planners need to be nimble enough to be able to take that direction from the elected body and lay out a set of policies and programs and budgets and projects and to continue to monitor their implementation because that's going to have to constantly be adapted as people learn more things. So planners are constantly in conversation with the people in places, the people with the formal authority to make decisions collectively, and they're in, actually in conversation with the place by gathering constantly information that requires updating and adaptation. Used to be cities would make a 50-year plan for the future, and then 50 years would roll around and make a new plan. Now, a year, there isn't a year that goes by where someone says to the planning and development agency, how should we update this? What do we now know that we didn't know before? What should we try next year? So these are all living programs, policies, and documents, and it's the planner's job to be in conversation and adapt them. And big data is somehow antithetical to that? Well, Larry seems to think that many are arguing that big data can help make the science viable by offering the experimental evidence for what constitutes an optimal city. I don't think we can stop it. I think that's going to build up all that information, and people are going to desperately try to find things that are replicable and that they can do experiments about. And the ethical side of that, I worry about, because we see in behavioral economics now, we see, well, we can't give this good stuff to those people because that's our control group. It's like medical and pharmaceutical research. I'm sorry, you got the placebo. Well, somehow we've convinced ourselves in the name of the greater good, it's fine for 50% of the people in the experiment to get the placebo so that you can prove with science with the other 50% that it wasn't an accident that that new drug had the desired effect. And we're going to have the same kind of phenomenon. People are going to say, oh, we have to do some experiments. So this group of people in the city aren't going to get this or they're going to be stuck with that so that we can make generalizations in our big data set about the city so that we have relatively matched groups, people, neighborhoods, places, and half get the treatment and half don't. And now we're doing science. The problem with the effort to do science is that the context within which those controlled experiments are happening swamps the findings of the scientists. In cities, there's just too many factors. You can't brush them away, hold them constant, pretend they're not there. You can't. And so we need a different approach, a much more conditional approach to making statements about what affects what. But even then, you're still going to be stuck trying to do experiments that are trying to take account of a lot of variables rather than a small number of variables, and thus your confidence in what you're learning is going to go down. 
And so what you're going to do is you're going to do the best you can, and then you're going to make prescriptions, and then you're going to test them, and then you can see what happens to people when you test them, and you're either going to be confirming them or disconfirming them, even though you don't really know because there's too much going on. People will say, see, we told you that if you make a city all solar for its electricity, this is what happens. And the place that they did it had a certain number of sunny days a year. It had so many tall buildings and small buildings, people living at this density. They had these walking patterns. They, and they're going to brush all that aside and say, this is a city that went all solar for its electricity. And this is what the price was of electricity. And this is what the efficiency was of the system. And did people like it? Who cares about that? Did it change relationships amongst people? We don't know. Too many other things could have affected that. And on and on and on. It seems like there's definitely another side to this argument. Absolutely. And in our upcoming episodes, we'll be exploring more of those, as well as diving deeper into the philosophical side of how big data and urban science affect our lives and the choices we make as a society. Sounds like some very cool stuff. Definitely. Until then, we'd like to thank the Department of Urban Studies and Planning, the debate participants, and organizers. We'd also like to thank Professor Larry Suskind for taking the time to come in and speak with us for this episode. And we'd like to thank you all for listening. Stay tuned for next time.